Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to share my conversation with Professor Neil Lewis, Jr. Dr. Lewis is an assistant professor of communication and social behavior at Cornell University and an assistant professor of communication research in medicine at Wild Cornell Medicine. Neil's research examines how people's social contexts and identities influence how they make sense of the world around them and the implications of these processes for people's motivation to pursue a variety of goals in life. In this episode, Neil and I chat about his recent publication titled What Counts as Good Science? How the Battle for Methodological Legitimacy Affects Public Psychology. We explore the history behind the different methods used in basic and applied science, how these methods influence perceptions of legitimacy, and what lessons we can learn to address the current crisis of confidence in psychology. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It's a great privilege to have you here today morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you. Today we're going to talk about this awesome recent paper that I saw, I think, on Twitter. And it's titled, What Counts as Good Science? How the Battle for Methodological Legitimacy Affects Public Psychology. Um, so I really, really love this paper. I think it's a great review into the different practices, different subfields of psychology. And yeah, just a great work of meta science. I think a good starting point for this conversation could be to go over this anecdote you present at the beginning of this paper. And just to give some context, um, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, people began to turn to researchers, particularly in psychology and the behavioral sciences, for answers on how to design various policies and guidelines. And you very articulately talk about how this influenced the priorities that different psychological scientists have and what kinds of challenges came up in this process. So would you like to go into into how, I suppose, I would assume you began writing this paper? Yeah, sure. Um, I can start there. So, you know, COVID hit. I remember, you know, we were sitting around back in February, March of 2020. And, you know, when COVID hit, psychologists, um, like many other people in the world, had a bit of an existential crisis about our work um, and its meaning in the world. And, you know, people wanted to help, um, wanted to feel like they were contributing to the larger cause of addressing the pandemic. And so one of the things that I observed happening um, and seeing some of this play out rather quickly on Twitter was there was this rush to run a bunch of quick studies on MTurk and elsewhere and write these papers and share them um, very quickly about how findings from those studies could inform the pandemic response. And so, you know, I understand why people did that. They wanted to feel useful and sort of help the broader cause. But the challenge is that many of them weren't really thinking about and addressing the larger context of the society we live in and what that means for doing this kind of research and applying research in a pandemic setting. So that's the broader context that made me really think about the differences in methodologies um, and what they mean for our ability to respond um, in these public situations. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. And it looks like the way that you approached this is you began to think about how knowledge is produced in the field, I'm assuming. So Mm -hmm. the next section in the paper goes into um, you highlighting research by various academics, including Stephen Roberts, where he looks at Stephen Roberts is a professor at Stanford. Uh, He wrote this paper looking at who are the different people who produce knowledge in the field. And uh, I guess talk about like why that is the case. So do you want to get into this? Like, how did you begin thinking about like who counts in the field, let's say? Yeah. um, So, yeah, the issue of who who counts um, is where I started because of, you know, work by Stephen um, and others before him, right? That um, we were in a situation where it was a global pandemic. That's uh, an important part to remember here. Mm this is affecting people all around the world. We're trying to figure out solutions that are going to be able to have global impacts. But when you think about how our research is produced, we have a disconnect then, right? So psychology um, is still mostly an enterprise of the Western elite, right? So you look at who the research participants tend to be in our studies. You look at who tends to design our studies, the authors. You look at who reviews and edits them. These are people that are still largely being drawn from the power herd powerhouse uh, research universities in the United States and Canada, Western Europe, you know, it's largely a field of affluent white people. And it's been that way for a long time. You know, um, before Stephen uh, wrote about this in his paper, David Sears uh, wrote about it back in the 80s, um, you know, before I was born. Henrik and colleagues wrote about this again in 2010 um, in their famous uh, weird paper. And so, you know, that stuff matters because it has consequences for the kind of research that gets done. So, you know, the kind of people who conceptualize good science as that which is done inside the white walls of university laboratories or um, are done in sort of quick MTIC studies, a little bit different um, than uh, the people who are valuing and doing research out in communities to address broader problems in the world. So that's why I really started with thinking about who is involved in the production of our knowledge in this paper. Yeah, interesting. And one of the lenses with which you look at who is producing knowledge is this distinction between basic and applied research, which do admit for, I think, a sentence you say that you don't really believe in a naturalistic distinction, but you think it's kind of a useful way to talk about the field or how people in general talk about the field when they do boundary work, as you described it. Yeah, I mean, there's been this long history of the term boundary work comes from sociology, Mm -hmm. but um, this broader idea of really separating uh, the field into different camps, if you will. In in psychology, there has been a long distinction between quote-unquote basic researchers and quote-unquote applied researchers. You know, there are different methodological traditions um, associated with each of those um, kinds of approaches, right? Mm -hmm. So You know, I was trained in in social psychology, for instance, um, where so much comes down to the the two-by-two experiment, right? And, you know, there are a lot of things that you can learn from that approach, but it's not the only way of doing um, good science. And so I think really reflecting on how each side, if you will, thinks about constructing knowledge, how do they design their studies, what methods do they use, um, who do they include or exclude in the research process is deeply important for knowing whether we can apply the work. And, you know, the field wasn't always this way, right? There um, has been a long history of 
people in the field doing uh, more applied research, going all the way back to Kurt Lewin, mm-hmm. um, who uh, was doing field research um, and developed a whole paradigm of field theory mm-hmm. to really understand the nature of um, social context and how that affects the ways that people think, feel, and behave. That kind of tradition um, is really helpful when you're trying to develop intervention uh, kinds of research. I'd like to just really quickly mention something you cited from from Stephen Roberts's paper, which is that the editors and the researchers in psychology, and this is in like pretty much a sample of representative sample of journals, are mostly of white descent, I suppose, or white, and that the mm-hmm. the participants from these studies that are run by these uh, researchers also identify as white. Let's say, and and the interesting contrast is that like when researchers of color do research, the participants in their sample are usually people of color. And I thought that this was interesting because I don't know whether this is because people of color tend to do more, I suppose, intersectional or applied research versus people who are white tend to do what you describe as basic research, which tends to almost predominantly use white participants because of, I suppose, their blind sampling procedures. I just thought that this was, could be an interesting connection between uh, who does research and what kind of research is done. Yeah, I mean, this is part of, this is really what's um, underlying many of these broader discussions we've been having in the field about the role of representation in the field, right? That we know not just from our field, but um, from our neighboring fields, fields of sociology, fields of political science, um, fields of anthropology and the like, that the different experiences that people have in life due to how they are socially positioned at the way that they perceive, um, think, and interact with the world. And scientists aren't immune from those processes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it affects the kinds of science uh, that we do as well. And so, you know, it's not surprising then that you start to see um, some of these differences um, in the kinds of research questions that are asked, um, the kinds of methods that are used, the kinds of sampling approaches Uh um, that are used seem to vary a little bit by who is doing the science. Um, So, you know, yeah, researchers from different backgrounds are going to focus on different kinds of questions because um, their experiences in life make some things more obvious to them uh, to study than others. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we have to keep that stuff in the back of our minds. That's part of what's going on here um, that Stephen highlighted um, in his paper and um, lots of other people have highlighted and work on this topic as well. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned uh, methods, which I suppose is a good segue into the section on, on what kind of research you think is, is done in the field or is valued in the field. So you have the sentence that starts in a very interesting way that before the cognitive revolution, research was probably more like context dependent or culturally sensitive. And then since the cognitive revolution, there has been this emphasis on phenomena that are sort of stripped of their cultural variability, let's say. So could you talk about what kinds of research you think seem to be valued and maybe we can go into why that's the case? Yeah, so in um, looking back in the sort of history of the methods in the field and how things have evolved over time, the cognitive revolution um, is one of those times that seems to have changed things for the field. And Bob Cialdini talks about this in one of his papers as well, about when there's a big shift from field, valuing some of the field uh, work towards the more 
basic laboratory paradigms. So, you know, since that time, there's been more and more of a focus on internal mechanisms, like what is happening um, inside the brain, and less of a focus on what we used to think of as the broader, quote unquote, power of the situation, right? So, you know, in the Lewin days, research was done a lot in partnership with organizations, with governments and communities, and really understanding the nature of how um, those interactions in context um, affect the way that people think. These days, it's a lot of bringing undergraduates into a laboratory and showing them different stimuli on a computer, and then looking at how they respond in reaction time or respond to some survey questions. And those kinds of differences in approaches teach us different kinds of things. And it's that methodological uh, distinction that we have to think about when we're trying to figure out what is relevant um, for responding in society, right? So the kinds of things you can learn inside a university cubicle is very different than the kinds of things you can learn by running research out in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, And I'm trying to, I've really been trying to make sense of this, of why is it that we began to shift towards these practices? Because it sounds at least that it should be better to do research in a way that's, that I guess recognizes the context sensitivity of behavior. And I suppose maybe we're sort of swinging from one extreme to the other before we were on one side and now the pendulum swung to this side where we're just emphasizing internal sort of cognitive factors, let's say, and and perhaps going forward, the most dominant approach might be some kind of unity of both approaches or something. Um, but yeah, I just, it, it just, I was racking my head trying to figure out why it is that, that there has been this recent emphasis on this these kinds of practices. And it could just be like the technological tools we have at the moment to make it necessary. And so we do it or something. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a mix of things going on, right? Part of it is, yeah, certainly the technology has evolved over time that we can study the intricacies of the mind um, in much more granular ways than we used to be able to, right? Mm So, you know, in Lewin's days, they didn't have fancy fMRI scanners that allow us to really look closely at at patterns of activation in the brain. Um, I think people were always curious about those things back then, but they certainly just couldn't study them in the way that we can now. So the technology is certainly one piece of it. But another piece of it is also sort of the um, incentives that we have, right? When you are doing field research, it takes a long time, it can be expensive, it can be messy, right? And you don't always get super clean isolated mechanisms that fit neatly into your Hayes process macro or, you know, Baron and Kenny process model if you're um, of an older generation, right? Those kinds of things that we now need um, in papers to get them published. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of research that you do makes it easier or harder um, to find those kinds of things. So we have to also remember the larger context that we as researchers are operating in. Like, what do our journals value? What do they say you need to publish your papers. How many studies do you need in a package? For instance, if you need a multi-study JPSP to get tenure, what have you, leads you to do the kind of research that allows you to quickly churn out multiple studies. Um, it does not lead you to do the kind of research that may take years to do one study. And who knows if you get full mediation at the end of that. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about how knowledge is produced and what kinds of knowledge is privileged in the field. 
So maybe we can switch to talking about how knowledge is communicated. Um, and I guess we've already touched variously on, you know, who communicates knowledge or at least who produces knowledge. And so this might be this, the same person that is communicating this knowledge. But you, I think you, you bring some really interesting points on how there's a distinction in basic versus applied research on how objective each uh, subfield thinks the researcher is when presenting their findings or the extent to which they think the researcher's identity, let's say, affects the, the interpretation of the findings. And I, I thought that was very, very fascinating. Would you like to clarify what you meant by this? Yeah, so there's some traditions in which, you know, there's this notion that, well, the data speaks for itself, right? That, you know, we collected in this very objective way, we've got some nice numbers that we can put to it, and therefore, um, it just is what it is. And there are other research traditions, some of these traditions coming out of more qualitative um, orientations, where in which there is a different assumption, which is that we bring our experiences through how we're going to study these issues, analyze the data, um, interpret the findings, and so on. And so um, it's very important for the researchers to disclose uh, those perspectives as they're um, doing this research, engaging in this research process, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where um, statements of positionality come from and uh, statements of reflexivity um, and the like. This fields are starting from different approaches and how they assume uh, these things play out. Mm-hmm. So that's what I meant in that section. Yeah, and it's it's pretty interesting. I think I I read a paper at some point about how a research question was proposed to a bunch of different researchers. I think the question was something like, "There's a football game, and you have all this data on like how many red cards were given, and you have to." figure out whether there was a racial bias in how these cards were given. And do you remember, do you know about this paper? Yeah, this is the many analysts, one data, one data Mm -hmm. set paper. I love that paper. Um, But what I found most interesting about that paper was how people lost their minds when it was published. Mm. Uh, So (laughs) seeing some of the discussions play out on Twitter was, um, you know, reminiscent of this larger point that we were just talking about that, so, yeah, just to give some more context, research teams, there's like 29 research teams, mm-hmm. um, all got the same question, research question, and the same data set. Right. And so, you know, if you assume, well, like, everyone's just going to approach this in a like um, classic objective way, then what you would sort of get is everyone should kind of approach the analysis in a similar way to try and find the answer. And that's not what they found. They found that, you know, these teams analyzed the data in a bunch of different ways, despite the research question being the same, the data being the same. People analyzed it in a bunch of different ways, and they got a range of answers. And so there was a bit of freaking out about this because it um, suggested that, oh, well, there's these additional ways in which researchers can affect the outcomes of the study. And, you know, if you go back to the other way that you can assume that research is done, you might say, well, yeah, obviously, that makes sense. That people have had a variety of experiences in life that are going to shape the way that they think about this question and would think about how to go about analyzing the data and so forth. And that's fine. You just need to acknowledge that so that people can um, evaluate whether the process that you went through um, is reasonable. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a very fascinating idea. And 
is the so the main proposal is usually to have like a a section in your paper that mentions your positionality as a researcher, which I'm assuming is talking about how your identity or s- certain aspects of your experience might affect your interpretation of of the findings, or or maybe how would that affected the questions that you that you pursued, right? Yeah. So the, um, there's um, examples of um, writing positionality statements, mostly from qualitative literatures, but this has been sort of a paradigm and an approach that's been well developed um, and. And those approaches that, yeah, you talk about who you are and what that means for how you're approaching um, this work. And that's something that people can use as part of their evaluation of the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So I think the next point I'd like to discuss is the section on the paper where you talk about how these different approaches in basic and applied research might be sort of mutually necessary or let's say might learn from each other. And you talk about how up to this point, it might seem that the picture you're painting of the field is not all that optimistic that, you know, we have, we failed to sample appropriately the researchers who do research aren't really that representative of, of the population, let's say. And, you know, someone who wants to get into psychology might think, okay, why would I want to get into a field like this? So I don't know whether you can mm-hmm. begin to share your opinion, whether you, you have some optimistic observations thus far, not just about the current state, but maybe some optimism about a future that we might begin to, let's say, approach. Yeah. So, you know, I think the meta science part of my work, which this paper falls in that category, I think makes me optimistic because it makes it more clear what are paths forward, right? Mm-hmm. That. So we've had these problems in the past, for sure. And we can be sort of down and depressed about them if we want to. But, you know, another way that I see it is we are outlining like what work needs to be done, right? So we are making it very clear what we know and what we don't know and what we might learn if we were to address um, these issues that we're identifying. And so that gives me um, a lot of optimism. Like sometimes I I try to make sense of what needs to be done in basic and applied research in the context of the the sample populations that we have in our mm-hmm. research. So, for example, it's more often the case in basic research that researchers are looking for certain universals about behavior. Mm-hmm. And I try to think about what that should mean, like what kind of distribution of demographics should be in your sample in order for it to be generalizable to humans. And it's kind of a hard question because... It feels like you should have a representative sample of all human beings in a single study, which feels like you're not just sampling like throughout the entire country in America, let's say, but you have a sample of maybe someone from some people from each continent. And mm-hmm. then that would be generalizable to like all humans, let's say, and maybe even not because it would need to be a large enough sample. And Conversely, even on the applied research side, I think it's it's pretty interesting to think about what constitutes a representative sample a priori, because you know, once you do a a research project, let's say, on a population, and let's say that it was a, a population of like like people of color at a college, that might not be generalizable to a population of people of color at like a workplace. And maybe what you're looking for is is something different, maybe something like the sample in your study should 
be comparable to the sample in the context that you will apply it or something. And so it's, I think it's a, it's a pretty complicated question and I'm not sure whether like we have simple ways to address uh, like how to get representative samples, but I don't know whether, whether you have any sort of thoughts about this, like whether you think just in general, we should just try to get like nationally representative samples to begin with. And then maybe you can think about more specific questions later on um, or whether, yeah, it's ever good to like, have a sample of only white participants or only black participants or only Asian participants? I think my way of wrestling with that complexity mm-hmm. is to ask the question representative of what, mm-hmm. right? So it is unlikely that any one sample is going to really capture all the potential constellations of variables that you might be interested in. And I I don't think that's a reasonable goal to have, right? So you, over time, we might learn how generalizable the phenomena is that we're studying by repeatedly um, sampling um, and running these studies in many places and with many different kinds of people. And then we'll learn uh, whether or not it's generalizable, right? Um, If that's a goal that you have, right? So we're not going to get a globally um, representative sample most of the time to study the things we're interested in. We will have smaller samples, let's say um, that, who knows, you know, they're representative of um, the state of California. Let's say if you're um, at Stanford, maybe that's a goal that you have. Maybe you have a goal of trying to speak to the United States as a whole. And then, yeah, you need a representative sample of the United States. But even if you go down that road, what you learn about people in the United States, you can't assume that that's going to hold up in the same way with people um, in China, let's say. There's a whole area of psychology on these cross-cultural differences and the like. And so, you know, my broader point um, is you need to decide what is the goal of your research? What are you trying to speak to? Um, And then you sample um, accordingly. Um, But sampling in a narrow way Mm -hmm. And then assuming it will just um, generalize somewhere else, I think that's where we get into trouble. Yeah, um, and also I suppose speaking of of samples and populations, I think I think an interesting point that I liked also from your paper was that was that we shouldn't necessarily think of people as just data points, but as pe- as people who are embedded in communities, and that mm-hmm. perhaps researchers might want to work with them respectfully or like have certain kinds of collaborations. And I don't know whether you've done this kind of research before. I thought that was, that was a pretty interesting idea. Maybe you can share like an example of like an experience you had or, or talk a bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, um, I'll give one quick example that I think might illustrate what I mean here. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I live in Ithaca, New York. Um, So small upstate town, Mm -hmm. And the experience of studying racial health disparities here Mm -hmm. is very different um, than the experience of studying racial health disparities in New York City Um, and in different parts of New York City. We do some work in Brooklyn. We've got some work in Queens. We've done some work in in the Bronx. Those are very different contexts, and the people have different experiences there. And so you have to learn something about what is their life like in these different places if you want to do the kind of research that would be beneficial for them and would teach you something about their experience in a meaningful way. Like I can't assume 
that the things that I find here in Ithaca are going to be relevant to the communities I work with in Queens. Maybe they will be, uh, but I have to test that. That's an assumption I have to test. I can't just assume that that's going to be the case. And so that's what I mean um, is like really taking the time to figure out what is going on in the way that people are thinking about and experiencing their lives, how much of that um, is a feature of the places that they're they're living in and the cultures um, in those places, um, and how much of it does sort of transcend different spaces. Like these are empirical questions that we can investigate and find some answers to. Yeah, thank you for that. That's um, that's really uh, fascinating. Yeah, so I think another, I guess on the topic of structural and, and cultural changes we might have going forward, one other really interesting thing you brought up was not just diversifying samples, but also researchers, and not just having diverse researchers, but also truly valuing them and their work. And um, mm-hmm. I guess there is no better example of this than than the recent like controversy with perspectives in psychological science. And but yeah, the broader point I think is is really powerful that like you know we we don't just need to hire these people; we need to retain them, and we need to like make our departments places that are welcoming and uh, and valuing to them. So I thought I thought that was really powerful. Um and I guess this also connects to like these other points on eliminating disparities in in research funding, not just like funding certain kinds of research with the understanding that for example, I think I think in in Stephen Roberts' paper there's there's stuff to suggest that people are more likely to fund basic research than applied research, which implicitly is is going to support certain kinds of researchers than others. So, um, yeah, I, I thought that broader point was really powerful. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've been looking at a lot is there are all these papers out there about funding disparities um, at the NIH, at the National Science Foundation, um, elsewhere. Like, the agencies that really fund a lot of science, at least in this country. And so, you know, when you see things like that, that they're less likely to fund some kinds of research that happens to be the kind of research that's done mm-hmm. uh, more often by um, researchers of color, for instance, that those systematic differences in funding are certainly going to affect who ends up lasting in the field, right? So you you need the resources to do your work. You need the resources for um, not only doing your work, but then training a next generation that comes after you. You need those for um, promotion criteria and the like. So we have to really take a step back and think holistically of, about the broader system that we're in. Mm-hmm. And does that system, and ask the question, does that system support the people that we want to be around to do this work? If it's not, um, then you can't act surprised that you continue to have um, all of these disparities um, and a lack of representation. The system is one that's going to keep perpetuating those problems if you don't address each of these elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for those uh, for those brilliant thoughts. Yeah, so for our final question, do you have any advice for young academics who would like to enter the field of psychology? Yeah, so you know, as people are thinking about entering the field and you know getting started in graduate school and the like, I do think it's important to take some time to reflect on and uh, remember why you came to the field in the first place. Mm-hmm. I. You know, I always encourage um, students to write that down and remember that because it'll help you figure out like what are the 
questions that you should be spending your time trying to ask and um, will lead you to do really good research that's meaningful to you. And you can do that work in a way that is then meaningful um, for the field more broadly. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my mentors in graduate school had a different way of framing it, which was he used to ask, what keeps you up at night? Um, so this was Frank Yates um, at the University of Michigan. And I l- always liked that question from Frank because it really focuses you on what's important. Um, and then you can spend your time studying those things that are important. And if you do that, you'll make a contribution to the field and you'll make a contribution to the world. Yeah, great. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. This was a fantastic conversation. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. If you have any suggestions for future guests or topics of the podcast, please reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect to us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or elsewhere so people can find us.